1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's one 450 6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. Kevin starts us off in Illinois this hour. Hey, Kevin. Welcome into the program once I get my button to work there. There we go. Hey, Kevin.
2: Hey, how's it going?
1: Pretty good. How can we help tonight?
2: Uh, got a video editing question for you. Um, I've got some uh, some footage of uh, you know sunrise sunset, real fine gradient basically, and it's eight bit. Um, when I bring it into like I've tried Kden, uh, Blender, um, <laughs> kind of a, a open shot, every every video edit, Linux video editor I could think of, um, and every single one seems to add a lot of really bad banding. The original footage looks, mm. looks great, but as soon as I um, if I just bring it in and render it, it's maybe not terrible, but it's, you can see a little bit of banding. But, boy, as soon as you drop, like in uh, K-Live, as soon as I drop a filter on there, just bam, even in the preview, you just see the banding really standing out. And I just wonder if you had any suggestions or, um, I don't know, whatever, what, what your thoughts might be on that.
1: What was the original acquisition format? Uh, like, what kind of device did you take the footage on?
2: Uh, Mavic Air drone. It's 420, 4-2, um, 8-bit.
1: Okay, so it's a 4, I guess. MP, MP4 recording then, essentially. Yep, 4K. All right. So the the reason that you're running into what you're probably running into is in order for some video editors to process footage, and oftentimes um, to make them editable, what video editors will try to do is they will try to move to an intermediary Kodak because it makes it difficult. Um, Depending on where the keyframes are and those kinds of things for the computer to actually properly scrub footage And that's more true when we get to 4k because the computer has to chug so much harder And the problem is anytime we transcode We're going to lose quality And so what you need is a video editor that's going to be able to handle that kind of footage In its native format without uh, transcoding and there is a piece of software out there uh, That runs on top of linux. It's called lightworks. Have you ever heard of it?
2: I have I haven't given it a shot though
1: so, the nice thing about Lightworks is it is specifically designed to edit natively in a lot of those compressed video formats. So, I, for example, Kevin, one of the things that I do is I record a lot of footage in AVC HD. Not my preferred choice if I could choose, but the reality is most of the professional cameras that you buy that are under ten thousand dollars are going to record in AVC HD. So that's the format I'm stuck with. And the problem that I run into, and I ran into a similar thing to what you're running into, is I didn't want to have to transcode that footage into an 80 Media or a Kodak to do my editing before I was able to publish it up because um essentially you're you're, you're losing quality twice. You're losing quality on the ingest render, right. and you're losing quality on the out uh, on on the uh, on the render when it when it publishes so I, I i don't like that and um and so i switched over to using lightworks and that problem went away pretty much overnight
2: okay okay yeah i'll give
1: that a shot thanks the, uh, yeah thank you for the call i appreciate it 855 450 Noah. that's 855 450 6624 the email live at com. i'll add one more thing there is a there is a command that you can run it essentially uses ffmpeg and what it will do is it will convert the Footage into ProRes. The nice thing about ProRes is it is an intermediary codec, but you can actually publish without transcoding back out. Now your file size is going to be huge, but and especially if you're shooting things like landscape where every little bit of quality counts, you're probably not going to want to do that. You're probably going to want to edit in the format that you ingested in, and so that's what I would recommend uh, you do. The the only this is a it's a it's a bit off topic, so I, and I don't want to get too far down into the woods, but this is one of the reasons I always tell people not to count on cropping. There's an old saying, and if you've ever taken a photography class or a videography class, there's an old saying, and the saying is crop in the camera, not in the darkroom. And the idea is every time you crop an image or you crop a video, you're throwing away quality. So if you want that shot to be tighter, film it that way. Don't crop in the the darkroom because you're throwing away quality. And so preserve all of that 4k content. Great question. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate having you. Did you know you could join us in our interactive mumble room? It's a way to get your question on the air in a higher quality format and you need nothing but your computer. doesn't matter where you are in the world. It's a free piece of software. It's called Mumble. It supports voice over IP and we use it here at the Ask Noah Show. Bruce joins us in our interactive mumble room. Hey, Bruce, welcome to the program. Hello. How we doing
3: so pretty good um i recently uh managed to set up a Libvirt server which has been awesome for a lot of the things i've been able to do on there and one thing i want to do is install a home automation uh thing on there and i wanted to ask you since uh, you've done a bunch of that kind of stuff what's a good um you know a couple of projects that aren't going to break the bank and will have an actual you know noticeable effect or will be like a cool factor or
1: something like that okay here's my first question for you what are you most primarily interested in automating
3: Oh, everything. I, it, it's like whack-a-mole. I, I want to do everything, but I can't do everything. So okay. I don't really have a specific thing. Um, I do like the idea of doing voice stuff, and I have a Google uh, a Google Home um, guy that I could I could do stuff with, but I don't really have anything too specific that I want to do. I mean, I could obviously do the light dimming and, and that sort of thing or uh, intercom stuff. Um, I do have a couple of cameras around that I could interact uh, or, or do stuff with, but... Um, I'm just looking at, you know, for me and for anybody else, what are a couple, you know, ground-level things to get you up on home automation to say, hey, wow, that works, and, and it's not going to cost me 300 bucks.
1: Yeah, so you want to tie into uh, personal assistance. That's a great place to start. So what I would recommend is looking at something called Home Assistant. Now, there's a couple of different projects out there. There's OpenHab, there's Home Assistant. They each have their own advantages and disadvantages. Now, the idea behind Home Assistant or uh, OpenHab is, to have a central controller that ties everything together. So the reason I started, the first question I asked you was what do you want to automate around? The reason I asked that question is because there are various different companies that make the best product for a given industry, and then you can t- you can build a system around that particular product or that particular brand, and then you can tie other things in as necessary. And that you're gonna get, doing it that way, you're probably gonna get the p- best performance. So for me, it's lights. I'm most interested in automating my lights. Doesn't mean I'm not interested in automating security. Doesn't mean I'm not interested in automating temperature. I'm interested in doing climate control, and I'm interested in automating locks and security. But I, the most important thing to me in my house is lights. The reason is I don't ever like to walk into a dark room. I also don't like to waste power. And I also find that having a proper light setting in a given room, as weird as this is going to sound, and as first world problem as this is going to sound, it entirely can change my mood. I can put myself in a relaxed state, I can put myself into an excited state, I can put myself into a I want to get work done state, all depending on the lighting in a room. And I found that to be a very powerful tool to kind of motivate me to do various different things or, you know, if I need to relax. Uh, And so I built my home automation system around lighting. And anytime we do lighting, we go to a company called Lutron. Lutron probably makes some of the highest end light switches. Now, they cost a pretty penny but they will do the best job. And once I built my lighting system, then i found ways to tie those controllers into, uh, for example, last week, I just did my climate system and I went with Honeywell Redlink. Honeywell makes some of the best thermostats out there. The problem that you're going to run into when, as you put it in whack syndrome, is when you start getting all of these various vendors, you have two choices. You either buy into a one given ecosystem and then you're stuck with that ecosystem. And so I know people that do that. They'll say, well, it has to work with, She who lives in a box and and works for Amazon and I won't say her name, or it has to work with the the Google Home Assistant. And you can do that, but then you're stuck with manufacturers that are supporting that infrastructure. And here's my bet. I bet you dollars to donuts. I put a dinner on the table to any in each and every one of you that. 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, something is going to change in that API, and you're going to rip out all those light switches, all those smart, fancy light switches, and you're going to have to replace them. i make you a further bet. I'll bet you everything I install in my house and have been installing for the last 10 years, I bet it will all still work. Why is that, Noah? Because the part of my systems that talk to the network is a separate component than talks to each one of the systems. So what do I mean by that? Let's dig in. The light controller, for example, made by Lutron, all the light switches talk to a central light controller made by Lutron. That controller then ties into the network and can speak a variety of different languages. It has an API. It can speak direct IP. It has the ability to speak over serial connections. I have the ability to control closed contacts. If I say I push this light switch in this room, short these two pieces of contacts. If these two contacts are shorted, turn this light switch on. That can all be set programmatically. So it's very, very future-proof. Now, did it cost me a little bit of money to put that in? Yes. Yes. But I'm building for the future. I don't want to have to re. I don't have to want to rip half my house apart every time somebody deprecates an API. And so that's my that's my problem with some of these quote unquote smart home solutions is that they're they're essentially they're five minute builds. They're designed to build to push to the mass, to be easy to set up with an app, with no real regard or consideration for the fact that that app has to be updated, has to be maintained. These things live on side of a network, which means you have to continue to be able to push firmware updates to them. And if they're becomes a problem with a kernel module or something like that you have to plan for the fact that you have to have space and processing power to be able to update these smart things and one of two things are going to happen neither of them are good either we don't update these things and they become gaping holes on the network or we continue to update them and just say that they're no longer supported because they've been replaced And then you got to pull them out and replace them in your house and i don't like either of those options and so for me i tend to i tend to buy either more commercial grade stuff or at least high-end high-end home stuff, not the, not the $30 switches from Best Buy. Um, so that's a really long way to answer your question, but the answer to your question is start with something like Home Assistant, and then my suggestion to you is research individual systems. If you're gonna buy a lighting system, research lighting systems. If you're gonna buy a heating system, research heating systems. For lighting systems, I mentioned Lutron. The Redlink system I purchased from Honeywell. Again, all of the thermostats, they're not connected to the Wi-Fi. The thermostats just speak back to a central controller. That central controller then speaks on the network to the Home Assistant box, and that then can communicate with the light system. Interestingly enough, Lutron, being the biggest name in lighting, and Honeywell, being the biggest name in, in climate control, guess what? Guess what happened? Turns out those two controllers can talk directly to each other. So even if Home Assistant goes away, I still have a an option of making those two things talk, um, and and that future proofs me, and it allows for infinite expandability. And if the There becomes a, an exploit, or if something goes wrong with that Honeywell Redlink controller, I just take the controller and buy one new piece. It will then talk back to all the thermostats, and now I'm back in business, and I've not lost anything. Also, everything has a local point of control. One of the things I find very, very frustrating is some of these newer automation systems, they rely on IP links to activate or deactivate a light. We introduce latency and all of a sudden you have a situation where you walk into the bathroom, you push the light because you need to do your business and the light doesn't come on. That's a very frustrating situation. I don't like to not being able to turn on the light when I sit down in the restroom, right? So uh, those are the things I would encourage you to consider. As far as where to get started, there's Home Assistant, there's OpenHab, there's a couple different open source projects you could look at. That to me isn't nearly as important to research and spend time on as the actual systems themselves. Is that it a long way, but does that answer your question?
3: Yeah, it does. I mean, I'm already—I'm uh, planning on doing a Home Assistant this go round, and um, yeah, I—I'm I, the kind of guy who would just do piecemeal and buy things here and there, and you know, f- you know, I'd see something at Best Buy and pick up the these outlets that happen to be controllable over IP and try and hack it together and stuff like that. But your advice of you know, get something that's going to work is probably the be- the
1: better way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Give me, uh, give me, yeah, let me give me a call back. Let me know how that goes. Okay. Will do. Thanks for the call. 1-855-450 No. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard, become part of the program. Now, last week we had a question about Collabora And I have i I've played with it enough to know that it's uh it works, but I've not really put it into production. Now, I actually had a, a chance to meet up with Frank at scale this week, and I had a chance to talk to him and say, hey, you know, I had a listener call in and ask, and you know, this is what they were looking to do. And Frank said, yeah, it can be a little bit of a challenge to set up, but once you've got it set up, it works really, really great, and we have plenty of people using them in production. Then I got an interesting Telegram message, and the interesting Telegram message was, hey, Noah, I understand that you're not the guy that uh, uses Collaborate on a weekly basis, but I use it all the time, and I'd love to be put in contact with this user uh, because I would like to share my experience, and I could walk him step-by-step on how to set that up. I said, that would be great. Turns out, both of those guys are in the interactive telegram group and so if you're not you're missing out on part of the show it's called the geek lab it's a free app you can download it for android mac os windows ios just go to asno or telegram.asknoahshow.com there'll be directions there it'll direct you to your uh, app store of your choice you can download the free application called telegram and there you can participate in the chat it runs 24 hours a day seven days a week these two guys hooked up they started to have a shared experience and it really drove home the power of the community, right? I don't necessarily have all the answers, but what the show has become is a place for people to centralize around to help other people with Linux, and that's what's happened this week. So I invited them both to join me on the program just to stop on in and say hello and uh, and find out where this collabora suite is at. Uh, gentlemen, are you with me? All that build up and nobody <laughs> if they uh if they oh they're in join queue i'm sorry uh this is a uh this is an issue does anybody have the um permissions to pull them in we've got some people up in the uh and i don't have permission to do that i'll let our uh, capable mumble people work on moving those guys in it's, it appears we have a permissions error and so i, I can't actually bring them on the air uh, actually i wonder if i go in here you hey, can there we like go. hey guys, books. guys, guys, hi. i uh, I want to jump in here for a second because uh, we don't have the proper permissions to uh, to drag them into the on-air channel. Can I chat with the two gentlemen about uh, Calabra? Yeah, we're in here.
4: Hey, so give me the story, guys. Uh, well, it started out uh, me just asking for some help in the Telegram group and uh, didn't really hear a whole lot back. And then I called into your show and you gave me your two cents about it. And then uh, Ian reached out to me uh, personally through Telegram and offered to help me out.
1: So, Ian, what's your expen- experience with Collabor? What's that been like?
5: It's been very good. I mean, literally, well, I've not got that much experience with me because I, I tried starting installing it just after Christmas. and it, I just about managed to get it running about two weeks ago and that's when I heard Kyle on the show uh, asking for, pro- you know, saying that he had some problems and I thought, well, I, I hear your pain and um, everything that he was stuck on, it was the exact same things that I'd been stuck on and um, yeah, it, from where he was at, it took me about another two weeks uh, to get mine going but he, uh, we got him going in
1: that night actually so how hard is it once you know the little pain points and the little steps to get through how hard is it to get Collabora up and running well just
5: let's say that first time i ever installed arch i did it in an evening Collabora took me uh, over a month or so to get done uh, but now i can probably spin one up in about in under 30 minutes everything from start to finish
1: Okay, but that, there, that's a significant investment of in time, but you're willing to do this for a, for a guy across the internet and walk him through it uh, just because of a shared sense of community.
4: Yeah, yeah I was, I was said, really I, grateful I to pain. Ian for what he did
0: for me.
1: Awesome. Ian, comment? Yeah, I
5: just, uh, I just felt his pain, and it was quite, it was a bit uh, like deja vu. Uh, everything he said, I went, oh, yes, it's that's what I went wrong, and that's what I went wrong. It was like,
1: it was like, exactly what i'd done wrong awesome well thanks guys i really appreciate you reaching out ian to help and uh, i'm glad that you were able to to find help and i'm glad that the telegram group was a place for you guys to do that
0: yeah Noah, and i
4: will say um with all the guides and stuff out there the one that ian sent in the telegram group the linux babe one That, if other people are struggling or whatever, that is a reliable source to use to get up and running if you don't have somebody like Ian to hold your hand. Yeah, you
1: bet. Maybe, Ian, if you could shoot me that to to live at show.com, we'll include it in the show notes this week. If anybody else is struggling with that, then they'll have that resource available. I want to go on to uh, F Society, also in the Mumble Room. Hey, man, welcome to the program. F Society?
0: Hello. Hey, what's up? Hey, i am um, um, so, um, so on the show? You are. All right. So, uh, I have a question about open source and closed source and how I well, I had this thought the other day about how open source is you build it yourself, you know, you build it fast and, you know, you involve a lot of people. And, you know, and that's how it's grown, you know, and closed source, you have one company and you have to make everybody, you know, uh, obey the same principles and have good design principles or whatnot. And what I was talking about open source is that it's, it's very in crowd. It's very like, you know, distro here, distro there, distro that, you know, we have yum, we have apt, we have, you know, and then open and then closed source, you know, windows, it's like, this is the one true thing and it works but it's but it's harder to get people on board with Linux because it's so open source because the people that built it know it, and then maybe that's the culture. And I don't know sure. how I can coalesce that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things, and I actually, we, uh, we spoke to him at, uh, at scale, and we're going to have him on the program, is Alan Pope has been working on a technology called Snapcraft. And uh, what snaps are? They essentially solve a lot of the problems of what you're talking about, where um, a developer may write an Electron application and they may not understand how simple it is to package for Linux. So Snapcraft creates a suite of applications and tools in which a developer can simply click a button and it will take a an existing Electron app and just turn it into a snap package. That snap package is then stored in what's what we call Snap Store up on the internet and a user can install it by issuing a single command and every time the developer updates that code base the snap is automatically updated and so it's an entirely new way of distributing software and the potential exists for that software to exist on windows mac and linux so it could be not just uh, agnostic in terms of linux but it could be agnostic across platforms it also means that the path to getting software on linux and maintaining the software on linux becomes more straightforward which it hasn't been in the past hmm. Does that answer your question a little bit? Because I mean, so to a certain degree, I understand what you're saying. Anytime you have open source, you're going to have a wide variety of choices. Anytime you have a wide variety of choices, you're going the the potential exists for uh, for people to make bad decisions or bad choices. Right. And and so, you know, you're going to you're going to run into that. Um, and, and that can be confusing for a lot of people because the release cycles are different and places where code is stored is different and packaging is different and distribution is different and installation procedures is different, all of those kinds of things. So it can be confusing. I do understand what you're saying. But anyway, great question, F-Citizen. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Again, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. Coming up in the later half of the hour, we're going to talk about scale. I had so much fun uh, being at scale in California. Thank you very much to all of the people that came out to hang with us. It was a blast. Um, One of the things that I ran into was the people that you meet, right? The people that you meet really make or break that conference, or make or break any conference, and the people at scale are just absolutely fantastic, and I had the opportunity to not be the smartest person in the room, and that's always super fun for me, but was interesting. Last week, we were talking about Bastillion. And since I started playing with Bastillion, I've started to play with obviously all of the software packages that exist that kind of do that same thing. This idea of central managed servers that you can manage inside of a web UI. And I came across another program called Teleport. And no kidding, uh, my producer William and I were in our room and we were hanging out and we were working on Teleport and trying to see what we could get working. And we walked down to the show floor when they opened up the expo hall, and the first booth we walked by, gravitational teleport. I mean, you can't make that up. And so I stopped, and I just chatted with the guy. I said, hey, you guys are doing really cool things. Uh, I really love your product. Um, could I chat with you about this? And so we sat down, we recorded the interview, and it was a fantastic time. And I, I won't spoil it, but suffice to say, there is a better option than Bastillion out there. Easier to deploy more widely scalable has a lot of really cool options and I spent pretty much the entire time I was itself playing with that and some YubiKey stuff uh, because it was fun but the that ability to go upstairs and hack on something in my hotel room walk back down say hey uh, how do I fix this or how do I change this oh this is what you do okay great go back up and play with that a little bit more that was absolutely fantastic also to note uh yes I'm sorry not self-scale uh also to note we are doing video this year, so we recorded all of our interviews as video interviews. Now, we're going to we're gonna fire the audio here during the show so you can hear it in your podcast player, but if you're interested, we'll have a link to our YouTube channel, not the Ask Nomad YouTube channel, but a separate YouTube channel dedicated specifically for Linux video content. We're going to publish those videos there, and you'll be able to watch them, so if that's for you and you want to You're one of those people that say, well, communication, 85% of communication is nonverbal. Well, fine, we're going to publish it for you. We're going to have it available to you. So anyway, uh, we're going to go to our Linux Newswire newsroom a little bit early, and then we will get to our pre-recorded interview. Here's Eric, the IT guy from the Linux Newswire.
4: From the Linux Newswire studio, this is the Weekly Roundup with Eric, the IT guy. Hey, Noah, happy to be with you again. And here are your Linux and open source headlines. First off this week, we announce a pair of acquisitions. The first is Mellanox. NVIDIA managed to outbid Intel and others to purchase the California-based hardware manufacturer in order to expand their offerings to include Ethernet and Infidiband cars. It will only cost the GPU manufacturer $6.9 U.S. billion, and the deal is expected to close in the last months of 2019. The second major acquisition, and a surprise to many as well, was the purchase of Nginx by F5. Nginx is a streamlined, featureful service designed to host web content, provide proxy capabilities, and is a direct competitor to the Apache web server. F5, a large player in the network appliance space, is set to purchase a small startup for $670 million. Both parties insist the acquisition will not change the business model nor the mission of the project, with specific callouts made to the open-source community. What will change, according to a blog post by Nginx Gus Robertson, is the velocity in which they will be able to execute their plans. The combined products from S5 and Nginx hope to create a new generation of end-to-end products spanning the application server through the network security layer. Next up, Purism announces their progress towards reviving an open source dream, convergence. In the news lately for their efforts towards a privacy-focused phone and hardware refreshes for their laptops, Purism announces that the Librem 5 phone and the Librem 13 and 15 laptops will be able to share a common OS through PureOS. Built on the GNOME desktop, applications for both platforms will share a common code base allowing for increased security and maintainability. While hardware issues have delayed the Librem 5 phone until possibly Q3 of 2019, it is important to consider that with the continued uncertainty around the future of Android and the decreasing popularity of the iPhone line, a new option is essential, especially one with privacy and open source at its heart. Finally, this week we take a quick look at another IT concept. Last week we looked into the buzz around serverless. We continue that theme this week with the hybrid cloud. With the growing complexity of applications and the increasing need to always be online, infrastructures have had to expand to accommodate the shift in the industry. Multi-site data centers, or full DR, disaster recovery sites, are expensive and difficult to maintain. Another growing problem is government policies such as the GDPR, which require customer data to be hosted in the country of origin, requiring companies to have an additional presence wherever their customers live. The solution was realized with the advent of public cloud providers such as AWS. A hybrid cloud allows the flexibility of cloud technologies with the ownership of an on-premise data center. Companies can now keep most of their data warehouses, processing capabilities, and their applications running in their on-prem resources while leveraging a cloud provider to decrease latency, scale to meet demand, or to serve as a DR solution in case of a catastrophic event at the home data center. Hybrid cloud, while dismissed by many as a marketing buzzword, has a true place in the future of IT operations. For LinuxNewsWire.com, I am Eric the IT Guy. Now, Noah, back to you. Thanks, Eric. We appreciate having you every single—actually, hey, Eric, uh, before you go,
1: are you still there? Yes, sir. Hey before you take off. I I want to pick your brain for something. I saw that I saw that engine X story and I I, Originally I put it in the show notes. I thought well I've got to talk about this and then as I was reading through it. I was trying to go through talking points I'm like, I don't care. Is there am I missing something or is that just like a nothing burger sandwich?
4: Um if, if you take if you take what they what f5 and nginx say at face value I don't think there's anything to worry about nginx is a great tool it's running a huge percentage of the internet uh, but um, but the real problem is, if they do go out and close source Nginx, I, I think you're going to really upset the the open source community. Not just uh, not just the developers, not just the the heart behind the open source community, but but uh, I mean, you're really going to upturn an entire ecosystem that has has migrated from Apache web server to Nginx over the past few years.
1: Okay, so there. But the plan is to keep everything the same, so nothing is bad is supposed to happen, right?
4: Right. There it's it's kind of like what IBM told us about Red Hat. It's it's a partnership uh, between F five and Nginx. It's it's giving Nginx the, the full resources and the the leadership and, and the direction that F that five can 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 bring to Nginx.
1: Okay. Well anyway, I appreciate the news read, Eric. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and thanks to letting me pick your brain about it. I just
4: when I heard that news story, I was like, man, just I don't know why the internet has lost its mind over it. And then that's exactly what happened is anytime a new headline comes out, the the entire Internet just blows up. And it doesn't matter if it could be the best thing ever or the worst thing ever. There's there's just the Internet explodes. It's incredible to watch. You'll be back next week with another news read. Of course, every week. All right, man, thanks. That is Eric Hendricks. He is Eric,
1: the I.T. guy and joins us every week for a weekly Roundup of your Linux news stories now. I want to take us back to scale again had an absolutely fantastic time this is the team from Gravitational teleport teleport is the name of the software gravitational is the software uh, The the uh, I believe he was the one of the project engineers uh, His name was Abram and I had a chance to chat with him absolutely fantastic. Here is that audio <laughs> Gabe Ingersoll is my guest. He is the Vice President of Engineering with Gravitational, a company that makes a product called Teleport, something we've been playing with here at SCALE. Welcome into the program, sir. Thanks for having me. So, start with this. literally just last week on the show, was talking about a really fantastic product that I was playing with that would allow me to essentially administrate servers through SSH, through my web browser. I get here to scale, and I find out there's a way better solution, and that is Teleport, and I'm not stopped playing with it for somebody who hasn't heard of it, give me the 30-second elevator pitch. What is Teleport?
6: So Teleport is a mechanism to use short-lived certificates uh, to not have to manage SSH keys. And as part of doing that, we have our own implementation of SSH that does full session recording of everything that passes through. So we basically take your identity from some sort of essential single sign-on, we encode it into a certificate, and then allow you to access your infrastructure without having to worry about losing your keys.
1: What are some of the advantages in using a product like Teleport as opposed to just opening a terminal and using standard SSH?
6: So standard SSH is was really great if you look at OpenBSD and what they've done they were sort of the the bearers with, with making sure that sessions were encrypted and it really is kind of a very old Unixism. Uh, the reason that we didn't use it directly is because we had to like, basically get the actual recordings. We had to prove that we didn't see data we weren't supposed to see. Um, so the other kind of critical thing was just the make it really really easy to use short-lived certificates. So there's nothing inherently wrong with keys uh, it's just that they're actually hard to manage right. A lot of people don't realize that those uh, 2048 bits of data that's sitting on their hard drive uh, is like the, the keys to the kingdom in most cases, right? So uh, it's just kind of ease of use along with these nice access- accessory functions to be able to deal with large sets of machines and to kind of reason about how the security of that stuff all, all ties together. Now that's interesting
1: because you're, what you're saying essentially is that we've actually increased security, and at the same time, we've essentially we've decreased the difficulty to be able to use this product because this entire product runs inside of a web browser. Yeah, or we can.
6: Yeah, we so kind of the the one of the fundamentals um, is just that if you cannot understand something, if it's too complex, you're gonna have a really hard time securing it. So uh, w- we very much just focus on doing one thing and one thing really really well, uh, and we just have this very strong belief that for for someone to uh, to actually have a secure system, they need to be able to reason about how the system itself is working, how the security part of the system works. And if you look back at kind of how X509 or the the notion of, of Uh, cryptographic certificates works um, and and how PKI works, it's it's one of the most secure ways to do it. And Mm -hmm. so for us, it was kind of a no-brainer that that's the way, the way that we should uh, institute the security. And then it has these really other nice properties that go along with it, such as these, these, uh, this cryptographic material has a time to live, so it automatically expires. Um, and then another nice thing about Teleport as a system relative to OpenSSH is uh, because we're fully managed PKI, uh, the, the machines and the, and the agents, uh, or the servers and the agents kind of form a cluster, and they communicate amongst each other. So you also get a couple of really nice properties where you can address things by labels, so if you have nodes that are coming and going, like if you have uh, spot instances or like a, a load balancer uh, with the with like auto-scaling scaling group with, with EC2 instances coming and going. In an older style uh, of using SSH, you kind of have to manage the, the certificates that are, are the keys that are assigned to the hosts as well. So in a teleport ecosystem, because they're all connected and all communicating, uh, it's just another nice property, something you don't have to think about. And it also allows you to kind of uh, assign unique labels to things and also... Uh, to work on things by by groups, by by like sets instead of um, singleton instances. The public key infrastructure,
1: PKI as your as you're calling, is it's that's a very interesting technology and it's very powerful and you can really get lost in it, but give us the kind of brief overview of what PKI is and why
6: it's so valuable. Oh that's a tricky one. It's it's um, it's one of these really sort of uh, well-tread topics in the security world. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the basis of, uh, if you say HPS or a secure lock mm-hmm. in your web browser, um, that's transport layer security, TLS, or what used to be known as secure sockets layer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the premise is that there's some sort of master somewhere and then there's a web of trust. So if mm-hmm. you have the public part of someone else's uh, certificate authority, mm-hmm. anything else that has been signed by that certificate authority, you can verify or know for sure, I don't mean, like a mathematical kind of uh, precision know that that the assertions or the, the data that, that they're saying is, is true, is in fact true, has been vetted by that company. That's why if you're connecting to Microsoft.com and it shows you that encrypted bar, you know that whoever's built your web browser uh, and has built in this kind of trust of the issuing CA, when you go and find uh, one of these issued certificates, you know for sure that you're actually connecting to that party. So it's both about establishing trust and then about using uh, that to establish a secure connection in flight. That's awesome. I understand
1: that the security is greatly increased. Uh, just in this PKI infrastructure alone and the way that you implement that, but you actually take it even one step further. You've implemented two-factor authentication. What forms of two-factor are available with uh, Teleport?
6: So in a in a teleport world, uh, a lot of the kind of large scale users of the enterprise users, they'll already have single sign-on systems. So something such as like an Active Directory or just the, the general taxonomy of their human hierarchy is, is in some master system. Um, so in most of those installations, the, the local kind of uh, representation of a, of a user within a teleport system that doesn't actually exist. Uh, teleport's just told to trust that source of single sign on and then leverage that to generate these certificates. In uh, s- other organizations or smaller teams, Teams, uh or, or folks who just don't want to have or like there's they don't want to be connected to a single sign-on there is a built-in user database and that user database uh, includes um, toTP so time-based uh, kind of token uh, mm-hmm. and also uh, u2f so your the quintessential example of that is a YubiKey. Um, So basically the notion of uh, an additional layer of security by something you have rather than something you know. So you know a password, you have a key, uh, like a hardware token, uh, so that allows you to just have this additional factor uh, of of assurance and just one of them escaping doesn't matter because you still have the other one protecting you. Not dissimilar to like an ATM, for example. Now, a lot of people are
1: turned off by products that require them to install something on the I guess it would be I guess it would be server side, um, but from the server side, if I have a, a large cluster of servers and maybe I don't even own them, and so I have very limited access, and and the decision tree is outside of my control,
6: Teleport still allows me to access those servers through a traditional SSH model, doesn't it? Yeah, so we're we're based on all of the kind of. Uh, longer uh, existing IETF standards and OpenSSH is actually, our SSH protocol is version 2.0. So we speak the native protocol. Mm -hmm. And you can actually, you don't have to use our our TSH client and you don't have to use our teleport server component if you don't want to. Um, You can take the key material that you get when you log in and and load it into a normal client. Or you can also export your certificate authority and tell your instances of of OpenSSH daemon to trust that CA, just a single configuration change, and then it'll let you log in. there are some additional properties to certificates and how we encode identity that openSSH is not going to understand so a role-based access control and um, different the kind of bit flags about whether it allow port forwarding or mm-hmm. x11 forwarding that it, it doesn't so you lose some capabilities mm-hmm. uh, but generally y- yes because we're, we're kind of we're based on Google's implementation of SSH within Golang like we don't do our own crypto we just inherit theirs uh, and uh, because they're, kind of, they're all standards-based things. Uh, any typical tool that uses SSH works with Teleport, uh, and then Teleport itself works with all the other off-the-shelf SSH things. The binary to get Teleport up and running was literally a function
1: of downloading a Go binary, running the thing, and all of a sudden I have a working server. I mean, it took me less
6: than 10 seconds. It took me longer to type the commands than to, for them to run. Yeah, that's kind of the beauty of open source. We have uh, some some people who have adopted it who then have contributed back to things like FreeBSD ports, uh, things like Mint Linux, um, things like Brew for your OSX pack manager. So you literally can brew, install, teleport on your Mac and just, boop, you have the client. Um, it's kind of just a, a property of open source. Like it ends up in places that are surprising or unexpected. And it's just the beauty of, uh, of, of the Apache 2 license and it just being out there. I set up Teleport and I went out to lunch
1: during scale, had it running on an actual production server and I was playing with it. And I said, well, I have to go get this file. So I did what I ordinarily would do to get a file on a server, which was I go to upload it to a server so I can double get it back down. Uh, because I assumed that was the only way to move the file through Teleport. As I'm working on it, I come to realize you've built SCP right into the web
6: client. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so the uh, web interface is really for the, the the population of people. You either either like find yourself on an Android device with Chrome, but you don't have a native SSH client, or you have a population of users who don't normally use SSH, but you still want them to inherit all the nice kind of security primitives that you get from a Teleport install. Mm-hmm. Um, so along the way, we've had folks say, hey, you know what, we our Windows users or uh, people who would traditionally use um, something like Putty or one of these other kind of uh, clients you download from Sketchy Origins or like the code base hasn't really been audited, you're not really sure where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, it's really built for those folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the ability to upload secure up and secure down, it's, it's just so, something that uh, we wanted to expose because it's another kind of use case where you just uh, find yourself needing to upload and download a file. All you have is web browser, secure CP. It's really just copy over SSH. It wasn't that hard to do, and it, it's a pretty nice, clean implementation.
1: It is a fantastic feature. It, it was a game changer for me. It was the, That was the point for me, honestly, Abe, where I went from this is kind of a cool thing to this is a must-have. I can't go back now, right? The ability to get into a server and move a file onto there from my, my, my web browser, that is just a fundamental functionality that I can't get back away from, and, and it's very much appreciated. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the differences between keys and certificates. I know you and I were kind of chatting about that
6: off-air. Uh, t- What what is the difference between a key and a certificate for somebody who doesn't know? So a key is basically bare cryptographic material. Uh, A certificate adds metadata around that cryptographic material. Um, So there's a a component where the key has been signed, so you sort of uh, have this delegation of trust happening there, and there's additional metadata that can can ride along with it. So in our case, um, we're encoding the access rules, and we're also encoding um, some of the, the options. Uh, the the critical kind of like the the thing that like why infosec professionals love certificates more than keys, mm-hmm. is because they usually include a time to live. Mm-hmm. You can set the experience to be like ten years in the future, but a lot of these organizations and, and descendant of this paper written by um, security researchers Google's at Google called BeyondCorp. The notion is that you would not have a perimeter. You would treat uh, Everybody, uh, every device, uh, every phone, that you wouldn't have VPNs. You just basically uh, do this point-in-time decisions about access on the fly, and using short-lived certificates or certificates that very ha- have very tight. Uh, expiration t- timeline, so like matters of, of minutes or seconds, is kind of a critical component to doing this at scale. So you you know you have really c- strong cryptography, and then if you know something get com- compromised, all you have to do is sit back and wait, mm-hmm. wait for however long the time to live was on that object, and once that time expires, you're done. So the the typical example we use is if you have like a, a, a regrettable departure at a business, uh, and the the time to live on the on the cryptographic material is like 30 minutes, mm-hmm. you you would take an individual into a room, sit down and talk with them for 30 minutes, and even if they kept their laptop or it's left at home, whatever, 30 minutes later, it's no longer valid, right? So this is just a critical part of, um, it's, it's, I think the best analogy is Mr. Impossible when, when Tom mm-hmm. Cruise gets the message and it mm-hmm. self-destructs. It's, that's the way to think about the difference between keys. Certificates self-destruct after a given amount of time. I I love that example. I also love that the fact that you
1: are truly built for enterprise and you're truly built for scale. The vast majority of the audience is going to play with this stuff and download it because it's open source and it's available for free and they like that. At the same time, there's not an insignificant portion of them are going to go back to their bosses and say, listen, we want to implement this at a scale. And their boss is going to say, okay, well, what kind of support can
6: I expect? You guys are ready for that. Yeah. We're a a traditional enterprise uh, software company since this is commercial off-sell software. We're not even a SaaS company. Uh, We we have a a philosophy that we don't believe in holding people's keys. We think people should hold their own keys. Mm -hmm. Um, So they. It, it is open source, um, but then a lot of companies will like. well we want to use open source, we like that we can go and inspect the code, we like that we can verify that it's correct, we'd like that we can have security professionals go and look at it, but we also want the peace of mind to have you know, uh, s- sort of solutions architects come in and, and, and show us how to properly set this up, to talk to us about our, our overall architecture, to talk about different workflows or APIs and how we can integrate this with typical day-to-day things we're doing. Um, it also, it, there's very interesting things that people ask for, so features or um, just threat profiles that are unique to them where they want to double check what they're up to mm-hmm. relative to kind of the security best practices that are out there. Um, it really is, is a, it's one of the most fun aspects of my job mm-hmm. is, to, is talking and seeing the kind of the inside of all these different organizations, um, seeing the problems that people are encountering and then helping them solve them, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of folks, when they get uh, things, these compliance regimes that come in or they get like an auditor who's coming in and saying, hey, you have to do these things because it's the current way you're doing something's insecure. Mm-hmm. That's probably the biggest payoff is um, allowing people to continue to to work the way that they want to work, continue to use low level tools, but be able to tick the boxes on these compliance things. So instead of uh, having to open tickets and like do screenshots and prove evidence that they've done certain things in a teleport uh, adopters ecosystem, they have recordings of everything that's been done. They literally will give a login Mm -hmm. to like the auditor and say, Hey, you want to verify what we did? Go look for yourself. Just go play the recording. Right, so that's a huge time saver. It's a huge kind of peace of mind to just be like, okay, here's this 300 item checklist, and a hundred of those items are just gonna go away when I implement this thing. One of those things that I totally glossed over because I'm on to so
1: many more of the cool features that I have forgotten about, the, Such some of the basic functionality that is in fact very cool, the auditing function. It records every single session, so you can go back and say, what did that tech do to that client's computer to screw up this thing or the other, and I can go back and click and I can play through that and see exactly what steps he did, and I, or I can prove to the client, hey, listen, we didn't do anything wrong. We did exactly what we were supposed to do. We followed the documentation. Here's here's the actual recording of him entering those steps.
6: Yeah, so the way to think about this is if you've ever used Screen or Tmux or any of these session sharing things, we do that at the protocol level. So besides kind of locking it down by virtue of having an exact forensic recording of every byte that came in and out, uh, we also allow you to open it up, so the exact inverse of that is sharing, mm-hmm. right? Um, so one of the other really cool properties that kind of has use cases for learning, use cases for like incident response, um, use cases for like pairing, is you can literally take like your, your URL within your browser where you have an active session, uh, a normal Unix terminal, mm-hmm. paste that in like chat or text over to your coworker, if they have the same permissions as you, they can open that, click it, and boom, instantly be dropped into the exact same shell. It's recording and it's enforcing all these security things at the same time. but it's this like you can have as many people as you want join I I probably haven't seen more than three or four but you theoretically I don't think there's an upper limit
1: that's so cool I can't I have not played with that I'm going to as (laughs) soon as we as soon as we wrap up you better believe I'm heading over to one of those tables I'm gonna check that out one of the enterprise features is the ability to tie in with some of the directory controls
6: yeah. So, single sign-on is like if, if in large organizations, instead of having this proliferation of, of distinct user accounts, mm-hmm. they want to have one record, one human like identity record, like mm-hmm. the, the, the quintessential example is your login to the payroll system. Mm-hmm. So they want, when you go and access individual kind of servers, mm-hmm. or when you go out and, and uh, hit uh, any kind of enterprise application, the ideal scenario is that you're using your single sign on your single identity, your real identity, instead of something like uh, uh, the deployment user or EC2 user or something like that. Mm-hmm. So because we're encoding that in in keys, uh, uh, in certificates on the fly, mm-hmm. and then we have this recording happening on the way in and out, uh, you get this peace of mind that everything that someone has done, all, all these mm-hmm. actions are actually tied back to their the same identity that you use to pay them like, as employees. Mm-hmm. What is What are some of the
1: options in the open source world if somebody says, hey, that single sign-on thing sounds great, but I don't really have a need
6: or an interest in uh, enterprise solutions. Is there another alternative? Yeah, so a lot of uh, open source teams who use GitHub as a, a lot of the open source teams who use GitHub as, a, as like the way that they do uh, software development, mm-hmm. uh, we support GitHub OAuth. So if you have teams defined there, you can connect your Teleport installation to your GitHub account or your GitHub team, and then magically kind of delegate access to specific sets of servers based on GitHub team membership. So that's available in open source. Um, we have a bunch of examples of how to install it, both uh, like Helm charts if you want to run on Kubernetes, uh, Terraform recipes to, to for various cloud providers, even the real simple things like Vagrant, uh, Vagrant up commands, or uh, just like a quick start like here's a, a two line shell script, here you, here you go, get started. One of the things I love about coming to scale specifically
1: is I get to meet with people that really are good stewards of the community. They're not just people that are, are there to make a buck off of the Linux community. And when I was talking to you, uh, you're one of those people that are doing that. You actually run a blog, and you have some really interesting topics on here: uh, microservices, containers, and Kubernetes in 10 minutes, how to use certificate pinning to improve the UX, gracefully restarting a program without downtime. I mean, those these are some really uh, cool material that's available for people completely for free and you're publishing this
6: uh... on your website talk about that uh, yeah, so one of the, like, the, the bigger challenges when you're you know, heads down and really focused on some of these um, things that are like not that uh, sexy to, to a lot of people, they think these are solved problems or unless you have a real specific use case, sometimes it's hard to discover it. Mm-hmm. it, it for us, it's really the things we want to write about uh, because we're passionate about it. Uh, we want to like, help people solve these problems that we solve, but it's also a big component about just getting out there in the world and uh, driving awareness that we exist and that we're, we're coming up with these cool solutions to, to hard problems. I, I had a chance to check out some of your blog articles the other night, and
1: uh, there are certainly some that talk about what you're doing at work, but there's a lot of them that are company agnostic. They're just good information for anybody that wants to learn. So I invite everybody to check it out. We'll have a link, of course, for you in the show notes, podcast.asnowashow.com. Abe Ingersoll, VP uh, of Solutions Engineering, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the program. We'll get you back real soon. You're welcome, Noah. It's my pleasure the website by the way is gravitational.com and then the blog is gravitational.com slash blog and so if you want to check those out absolutely fantastic individuals great to chat with abram uh abraham rather and, uh, and learn more about Gravitational Teleport. I have since rolled it into Ultraspeed and we're using it in a demo uh, fashion until we determine if it's right for us. And then we'll. Pro- I can tell you 99% sure we're gonna be able to to move it into prod. I, I wanna add one other thing too, because I think this was either glossed over, I, I didn't maybe mention it in the interview. The it, The way that it connects to the client can be agentless, it can connect over regular SSL. You can take a key and you can store that key file inside of the authorized key on the client side and then you can actually incrementally roll those and it can connect with no agent installed on the client side. So if you have a client that doesn't want you mucking around in their server and doesn't want you to be installing software, this is a way that you can try. It. And one of the ways or one of the reasons is that that's beneficial to me. And the reason that I care about that is because oftentimes I won't try a product or a project because it seems daunting to me to have to redo all of my servers. And let me tell you, if I rolled it out to 15 or 20 servers and decided I wasn't going to go with that project, no way am I leaving those servers enrolled. roles. So I'd have to find a way to remove that software back off and that process of putting software unknown onto a server and then taking it back off. Uh, and not being real sure about it, that's not something I'm comfortable doing on a production server. So for that reason, I wouldn't really test it at, at scale. And, uh, and I don't mean scale the conference, I mean at scale as in putting it on a number of servers. The other side of that is, I can't really give you my opinion about something unless I can actually use it in production. So the fact that this allows me to connect agentlessly means that I can actually use it in production and try it and see what it works without having to actually screw with any of my machines. Now, they do offer an agent, and you can install that. And if you install the agent, then what you get is it will populate inside of the web UI, and it does a couple of other really cool things. Um, and so you might consider doing that Um but either way, we got some people in the chat room that are going to check it out. Make sure to take a look gravitational.com, gravitational.com slash blog. If you'd like to read his blog, of course, as I said in the interview, we'll have it linked for you in the show notes. Just go to podcast.asknowashow.com, and there you'll find all of the articles and referenced in this episode. I want to shed a little bit of light on a project that is called OpenSnitch. Now, OpenSnitch is a project that was originally designed after a, uh, a Mac proprietary garbage alternative. And What it is is essentially a software firewall for your applications. Now, we have firewalls for our network, we have firewalls for our computer. What we need is control over those silly applications. Oftentimes, what you'll find is a given application reaches out to the Internet and you didn't know it was reaching out to the Internet and you weren't really sure what it was doing. It's nice to keep tabs on those things. It's nice to be able to understand what it is each and every application on your computer is doing. And so this that's what this OpenSnitch does. You install it on your machine and it keeps an eye on what's talking to the internet. From the site, the main thing OpenSnitch does is track internet requests made by applications that you have installed. OpenSnitch allows you to create rules for which apps have access to the internet and which to block. Each time an application that does not have a rule in place tries to access the internet, a dialog box appears. The dialog gives you the option to allow or block the connection. So, it gives you very granular control over what your applications are doing. You get granular control over what applications are accessing the internet, what IP address they are using, what user owns it, what port is being used. This is a fantastic auditing tool and something that prior to an application like this existing would mean that you would have to use a managed switch to keep track of some of these things. And I've actually done that on occasion. I've said, I'm interested in what exactly my laptop is doing plugged it into a matted switch and i just kind of keep an keep an eye on it nunix in the chat room points out that it also should be possible through a mac and rbac frameworks so i'm not sure I, if you're talking about rbac are you, are you referring maybe perhaps back to uh gravitational teleport uh, and they do support rbac if that is the question but yeah this is a really cool application it's not something that i really would want to dedicate an entire episode on or anything like that the um open snitch but it is something that's worth talking about and it is something worth shedding some light on because they are doing a fantastic job i also want to say a couple of thank yous scale is all about building relationships in fact i would argue that any linux conference worth its salt is all about building relationships and to that end i don't do the whole public speaking thing or big uh big organized meetup thing we had one um We had one planned event where we had people to uh, to to come and show up and stuff. And thank you very much to those of you who came out. But as predicted, because this is kind of what happens when you have these huge organized things, we ended up splitting up over three tables. And so a huge thank you to all of you that came out and split up over three tables. But I I felt bad. I didn't get an opportunity to uh, to really engage with each and every one of you the entire night. That wasn't the case the following night. I actually had an opportunity to do a uh, an off-book meetup, as it were, uh, and uh, just got to go out with some Linux nerds and hang out. And so that was the only expectation I went into that uh, that dining establishment for was just to, to hang out. And what ended up happening, though, was something really cool. Uh, System76 was there. Emma Marshall from System76 was there. And uh, Michael, and I'm sorry, Michael, I don't know your last name, from cars.com was there. And towards the end of the night, after everybody had been there, uh, Emma and Michael looked at each other and they said, oh, you do doing it. Oh, you're oh, OK. All right. What just happened there? They went, oh, that was our that was our corporate intercorporate speak uh, for we're going to take care of you guys. And so the entire group that was there of I don't know how many people and they just they picked up the bill and said, you know, we just want to help facilitate you guys uh, meeting and talking about Linux and encouraging good conversation and relationship building at Linux conferences. So. I just want to say thank you to both of them for their kindness and their generosity and for f- fundamentally facilitating making that conference a huge success and a lot of fun for me. I had a lot of fun that night, and I had a lot of fun meeting each and every one of you at the conference and hanging out. And if you haven't been to a Linux conference, scale should definitely be one you consider. But you have another opportunity. We have another one coming up uh, at the uh, in June. Registration is open. Head over to southeastlinuxfest.org. I will be the media director this year, and so we'll be doing everything on Linux, and it's going to be a great time. Hey, did you know this episode is available as a downloadable podcast? That's right. To download the show, visit podcast.asknoahshow. There you'll find all of the articles and references <laughs> made in this episode. You can follow us on Twitter. That's the way to get the latest, at Ask Noah Show. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Sarah, R. call screener, Ben, our producer. We'll see you next week, 6 p.m., asknoahshow.com we